Right? So I, I, I tell you that that you understand that this is not a casual thing. These are real estate. People's lives are at stake. And so when you say pray, we're not going through the religious duty. You have no idea how that thing calls me. And Christians are just so casual and passive, and people's lives depend on the energy and the enthusiasm with which we approach new things of God. It galls me, and not only it pains me sometimes. These are real issues, these are my friends. And I ask you this week just to pray for them, all right? Um, it's the uh, So, I just wanted to add that, so please do that. This morning, I want to. By now, you understand. Some of you have been here now for about near two months, and by now, you would understand that I really don't believe in church and this traditional um, choreographed kind of stuff. You know, I don't believe in like let's come and sing three songs and then take up an offering and give a sermon and then we go home. I don't believe in that stuff. This is an environment where. We want to provide a space for every person's development. And we're not saying that in a casual way. We mean that. I don't care about singing a couple of songs. If it's a sing-along, we don't need to do it. I don't need to go through the, the, the traditional rhythm. What we want is to create a space for the wholesome development of every single believer. What we want, if we do this right, and you remain plugged in and connected, I would want every single one of us to live with a certain buoyancy, a certain energy, a certain passion that cannot be mistaken, can't be missed. A certain grasp and apprehension of God, a certain knowledge of the Word of God, I want that to be the heritage of every person that walked through these doors. And for that reason, we will dispense of anything that is traditional, meaningless, and cannot contribute to that end. Dispense of it. Alright? And we will try things. And that's what I'm saying to you is that you would really do things differently. Well, like this morning I got a shaking about. I listened to John's presentation last week. Excellent teaching. And my first question is: how many of us heard it. How many of us went back and listened to it? Because, I mean, Bill is doing a remarkable job in providing us with the opportunity to at least capture the messages that we can listen to it. And the idea is not just to send it to those who have not heard it or who are not here, but also for us to listen to it again. You know, let me quote a scripture inaccurately, inaccurately here. Faith comes by hearing and hearing. There are some things you're going to hear more than once. Faith comes by hearing and hearing. You see, we believe as Christians, when I went to church, I heard the message, praise God. Let me share it with somebody who could get it. There's so much that you would have missed. If you listen to it a second time, you yourself would be amazed of the things that were said that you did not hear. So the contribution that Bill is making is for all of us. Go back and listen again. Alright? But more than that, I was thinking this morning of the need every week for us to have what I call a review. Like what John taught last week, to sit up and say, let's review that. Let's take about 10 minutes and go back over some of those concepts. Let's remind you of the salient points because listen, this 
is not church. This is human development here. You get a point? This is church. We are coming here to have a little religious experience and to stroke our little religious egos. We are committed to human development. Every single one of us must come to a place where we can apprehend God, know God, and represent God. Apprehend God, know God, and represent God. That's our commitment. And to do that, we will dispense of anything that will not meet that end. And we have to incorporate new ideas. I am concerned about what I call leakage. Christianity, I'm not talking to you, Christianity basically holds the concepts that, well, I've been to church and, uh, you know, I've done my duties for the week. But there's no commitment to retain. So we hear concepts and it's, they so easily leak. They leak because we are not the type to say, well, okay, we have this document called crosshairs. Let me kind of read this again. Let me sit down before I go to bed after studying the will of God. Let's just sit down and read this concept again and see, well, what is the image here? What kind of other thoughts are emerging in my mind out of the concept of a geyser? What other concepts that can emerge in my mind and not? But what we do, we read it once and dispense of it, but this card of it after we read it once, and there's no commitment to retain. And wherever there's no commitment to retain, the obvious response will be leakage. Where there's no commitment to retain, the obvious response will be leakage. I must make a commitment. How do I hold these concepts in my mind and heart? Where there's no commitment to retain, the obvious response will be leakage. And so what we have to do, we have to kind of um, ask you every now and again, what did you read last week? What did you hear last week? What notes did you take last week? How much of it you were committed to holding to, holding on to? So we will, we will more or less think about looking at systems by which we can do review. Go back and spend about 10, 15 minutes and do a review. Go back over these concepts. The reason why we are incorporating the, the, the crosshairs and praying on the Sunday morning as we do here is because some of us can't make it up in Tuesday evening. And so we're giving you almost like a, like, like, a, like a taste or a sample of what we do on a Tuesday, number one. And two, we're at least flicking the switch and activating the process here that you take it with you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every time Sunday. All right? So we, we try to discover ways by which we can really invest in the whole, holistic development of every single member or every single person who walks through these doors. On that note, let me talk to you a little bit. Again, um, I'm not concerned about preaching no message. <laughs> All I want to do is commit myself to a process of development. So let's, let's talk some more about the fear of God last week or whenever I was here a couple of weeks ago, we started talking about this. And if you, if you look into how I'm approaching this, these topics, you realize that there's a certain level of deliberateness that I'm after. Let me read this, because remember, the point we were making the last time is that um, uh, after the sons of Sceva in Acts, in, in, in Ephesus, after the sons of Sceva attempted to drive out an evil spirit out of a man, um, it says, great fear fell upon all the people. 
and the point we were making just in passing that we cannot effectively build a community and have impact in a city without those of us who are committed to the standards of the kingdom living with an overwhelming sense of godly faith. Because our commitment to the Lord is not measured by our attendance to church. Our commitment to the Lord is not measured by the size of the Bible we hug when we go to church. Our commitment to the Lord, it is not even measured by how many other Christian friends you have. There are certain standards and values that must be very, must be very present in your life and behavior in order for us to justify our commitment and adherence to the things of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is one that I want us to put our finger on and underscore as a critical part of our corporate ethos, our culture, who we are. We are still small in number. And I am convinced that God will add to us. And I'm committed to that objective. Alright? Let me read a few things for you. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. I'm going to read several scriptures. I really want to, be, to get to the book of um, 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, sorry. But I'm going to read this because I read it the last time we were here together. Are you there now? Uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says, And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. All of the church. And Niagara inside of it. All of the church inside of Niagara, inside of Buffalo, inside of Western New York. What did they do? They enjoyed peace. Now, whenever you see peace, please don't think about tranquility and ease. Peace is the result of vanquishing all of your foes. When you see peace, it means that we have succeeded in vanquishing all of our foes. Peace comes at the end of massive war. All of the church in Niagara enjoyed peace. They were built up and they were going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit, and they continue to increase. Now, read it to that, and you'll understand that increase for a community, increase the capacity to be built and established, only comes about by a community going on in the fear of God. You know, if you want growth inside of your own heart and life, if you want growth in the community, then if you have the Lord is a critical part of that whole component. The whole church in Niagara, the whole church in Judea and Galilee, the whole church in Samaria enjoyed peace. They were built up. They were going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit and they continue to increase. I want that to be a reality inside of you. The, the issue of being properly built, the issue of enjoying that sense of shalom, Vanquishing your foes. The issue of uh, just living in a state of increase and development and, and impregnability and strength. That's what we want. But you felt the Lord was critical. I have a couple of notes in my a couple of things in my notes. There's a fear that the Holy Spirit basically activates in the hearts of people. The fear of the Lord that we see in these churches in the book of Acts was not brought about by a sense of trepidation, but something that, that, that the Holy Ghost basically switched on and activated. 
This is a fear that allows us to, to live with a, a great, almost like horror, if ever God is unhappy with us. The fear of the Lord is that sense of horror and dread. The sense that you have disappointed God. That is something that I don't ever want to arrive at. Because what we all want at the end of our service to the Lord is that well done, a sense of satisfaction and condemnation. The fear of the Lord is something that erupts inside of a person's heart when they feel as though or they are convinced that they have disappointed God. The thing that drives Godly fear is a commitment to satisfy God, to make Him happy, to have Him pleased with your every service, your every act, your every thought, your every action. And that is what we want. The thing that drives us, Father must be pleased. Father must be satisfied. All I do, all I'm committed to at the end of my efforts, God must be pleased. You may not be happy with my efforts. You may not appreciate my efforts. You may still think I could do it better. Oh, I should not have done it the way I did it. But what I'm committed to is this, that God must be pleased. To my own hurt, to my own discomfort, whether it be I stay up at 3 a.m. when my body is demanding sleep, to my own discomfort, God must be pleased. To my own pain, God must be pleased. That's the driving passion that we want everybody to possess. The thing that drives the fear of God is the fact that God must be satisfied with my efforts. It's not that he is so big and I'm so small that he scares me. That is not Godly fear. The thing that he can literally in one breath destroy me and so I am completely terrorized by the greatness and the grandness of this God. No, that's not what I'm talking about. It's like, listen, I don't want to make anyone happy. I don't want my actions to disappoint him. I don't want my passion to be so weak and so waned that he is sitting there saying, I wish somebody had told him. Right? You see, fear demonstrates an unyielding commitment to rightness. I'm going to write that down. Fear, the fear of God, demonstrates an unyielding commitment to be right. Unyielding, meaning that you won't deviate, you won't compromise, you won't bend. The fear of the Lord is demonstrated in an unyielding, unwavering commitment to be right. To get it done the way it should be done. And that is seriously profound, right? Because, um, again, this is not a religious posture. I'm so terrified that this God. No, the fear of the Lord is demonstrated in my commitment to do right. Well, my wife is angry with me, and so my response is, listen, I'm human. I'm not going to tolerate that, that, that anger. I'm going to go to the bar. No, that is no commitment to be right. You know? Well, uh, I have needs. I have no money. I could lie and I could swindle a couple of people. All in the name of Jesus. <laughs> no, the fear of the Lord 
It's not in you clasping your hands and maintaining a religious posture. The fear of the Lord is demonstrated in an unyielding commitment to do it right. You do it right or you don't do it at all. That's the fear of God. Where there's no, you're not, you're not cutting corners. There's no commitment to compromise. You would suffer just to do it right. And that's, the, that's a critical part here. Again, hold this point. You're going to hear me say it all the time. To your own discomfort, you'll do it right. Even when you have the freedom, you have the power, you have the right to make the adjustments to satisfy yourself, the fear of the Lord is demonstrated in your unyielding commitment to do it right. Can you understand that? Let me describe the fear of God again to you. Let me talk some more about this. We gave you Nehemiah last week. Let me read Nehemiah again. I'm going to go through this because then I understand there's one critical thing I want you to, I want to leave you with this. Let me read Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. We read this the last time. Remember, we're not doing church here. We stopped doing that a long time ago. We are committed to human development. And so I have no problem in repeating things I've said before because listen. We don't do church anymore. <laughs> we stopped doing that a long time ago. Can we say together? We stopped doing church. Church is where well, every week I gotta give you a new message. And preachers all preach themselves, trying to impress people. I don't do that nonsense. And so every week they try to preach a message better than the previous week. Listen, competing with yourself at that level is absolute insanity. That's a dog chasing its tail. <laughs> You are committed to human development. Look at Nehemiah. Hear what it says. Verse 14 to 15. Listen to this one. Moreover, from the day I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, that is longevity, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen had eaten the governor's food allowance. Now you could, you know, it's easy if you read that and you see a guy said, you know what, Nissan, for three months? What do you see 12 years? What do you see is consistency in effort. There's no flux in behavior. This is not something you do when it was convenient to do it. When you see 12 years, you're seeing someone who holds to a position. This is not three months, two months, a couple of weeks. It's easy for certain people to hold to a certain stance of truth for a period. But there are times life can put some pressure on you. <laughs> and when that pressure hits you, there's a human side of you that says, let me bend the rule. Nobody would see and nobody will know. But when the human says for 12 years, what you're dealing with there is consistency behavior. This is when this becomes a normal part of your existence. This is not some spasm of rightness. You know what I mean, spasm of rightness? Well, I do right today, but I'm too sure I'll maintain that tomorrow. I call it a spasm of rightness. You get a twitch. Only for now we kind of will do it right. You get a twitch. For 12 years. Look at verse 15. But the former governor who will be for me, the former governor who will be for me, laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants dominated or dominated the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I did not do so. 
The point I'm trying to get is this simple. The fear of the Lord is not an impetuous emotional response. It's not a spasm. It's not a spasm. It's not impetuous and emotional. It's like an embedded GPS that always guides your action to right decisions. An internal GPS that always guides your action to rightness. For 12 years. Well, those words are important to me. I'm going to get this morning. For 12 years. That is not some spasm. It's not emotional. Emotions will change. As you know, I mean, I had left New York yesterday. It was 52 degrees. I left Trinidad the day before that. It was 79 degrees. Now I'm in Niagara, where it's what? What is it like now? 16. Listen, between those three areas, my emotions, even my own hormones, uh, 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 would have in some way adjusted to, it, to external stimuli. And at each point, I could say, well, let me adjust based on the external conditions. That's emotional. Emotions will always amend itself based on the external situation. The fear of the Lord does not act based on external conditions. It has nothing to do with the external conditions. It's an internal posture. It's like a GPS that is embedded inside of your heart that only guides you to one destination. To honor God. Please, I don't care how you go, where you go. That's where you're going to end up. It is an internal restraint. It's a reference. We told you that the other day. And the fear of the Lord is an internal restraint mechanism. It's like a referee that determines what is allowed and what is disallowed by the Lord. Listen to me further. Write this down. The fear of the Lord is a governing characteristic. It's a governing characteristic. It's a governing characteristic. Because it produces massive boundaries in the heart of a man. It produces boundaries in the heart of a man. Where he denies himself even that which is legislatively allowed. Let me explain that to you. Remember, when the man says that, I did not do this. He was the governor. Meanwhile, I was not talking as, a, as an arbitrary citizen. Who was given access to the to the to the to the bank account? Nima said, you "What? Know, I'm the boss here. Legislatively speaking, I could set the rules myself. I could determine what is allowed and what is not. And so, even when you are you have allowances, the fear of the Lord is what establishes internal boundaries." He was speaking as the governor. Do you understand? Yes, he was not an arbitrary character who was sitting there looking at thousands of dollars in front of his gaze and nobody's looking and said, well, grab a hundred and no one will know. <laughs> he said, no, I'm in charge. I can set the rules. I'd be right to determine what is allowed and what is not. And even though I have the capacity to legislatively allow for my Liberties and comfort. So I can't do it. That's important. Are you following me? Yes. Let's see some more. You see, 
The fact the Lord limits, it denies excessiveness. It denies abuse of people. When the master, the other governors did it. They even exacted shekels upon the people. He said, I can't do it. I can't. And you need to take this, take this even further. You, you are a boss. You have to understand these are the guiding principles. I am the boss. I cannot abuse people. I can't demand of them. In Nehemiah's context, he's talking about taking an additional 30 shekels from the people to satisfy himself. Now put that in the context of you being an employer. How do you treat your employees? Think about that being where you are a father and you have a certain level of authority over your children. Think about it, you being an educator in any capacity where you have some level of authority. How do you deal with that? What, what does abuse look like? Me master, listen, I couldn't abuse the people. Couldn't take advantage of them. Not because I didn't have the power to. But there's an inner mechanism that restrained me from doing it. I have dominance. I have a bigger car than anyone else. I could bypass the red light and let every small car give way to my strength. <laughs> I have more money than all of you. I could walk into the bank and tell people, make room for me. Because I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I have the right to do it. But there's an inner mechanism that says you can't do that. The external circumstances don't define your actions. It's the inner mechanism of God be fair. That shuts you down and says you don't. You all understand that, right? Let's read, let's read this. Let's read another scripture. One other scripture. Remember, we, we stopped in church a long time ago. This is human development, right? Any questions? We good? And another question? Yes, questions. The external circumstances. The external circumstances don't define your behavior. They don't dictate your actions. It's an internal mechanism that controls it. Because you have strength, it doesn't give you the right to dominate. Right? And, and that is across the board. Because the principles of the Word of God, they are not designed for a church building, they're designed for life. So if you see these things in the context where the pastor has no right to dominate, then you're still not seeing it. This thing applies to me in life. I go to the restaurant and that little girl who's serving me, she seems insignificant to me who happens to be the paying customer. And so you're booing the little girl because I am paying and you are serving. No, you have just violated a fundamental principle of the kingdom. Because the external circumstances don't dictate your conduct. Your, your because the little girl is there and maybe she's just serving you your little, your little soup and you think, well, I'm paying here. I am paying. I have the right to tell you what to do in the most dominant, dogmatic and condescending manner. Right? Me, man, said, listen, I'll leave governor and for 12 years, not a spasm, not like when I walked out of church on Sunday morning and I'm feeling all holy, and so I go to the restaurant and behave myself nicely. But by Monday morning, you abuse people. <laughs> That's a spasm. Spasm of readiness. Right? We good? 
Any questions again? Any other questions? Any questions? If there's no questions, it means that you understood every last detail of what I've said, that you have no need for a question. Or if there's no question, it means that you are so confused you don't know what to ask. <laughs> look at this, look at, look at second Corinthians 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7. This is where, this is what I want you to get from you. Look at verse, verse 1. Second Corinthians 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement. Note that word all. How much defilement? All. Not some, not the ones that are convenient to me. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, this to me is an explosive scripture. Explosive. Because there is a condition that's placed before us. Having these promises, having these promises, it's as though, well, if you didn't have these promises, you could be reckless and wild. But because of these promises, there's an even greater demand for us to be more careful. And we're going to describe what those promises are. Having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. What I want you to also recognize is this. There is something called defilement of flesh and defilement of spirit. Christianity has this way in which we will condemn any man who basically involves in any level of defilement of flesh. We will kill that man, ostracize him, throw him out of the church, and send him to hell in an instant. How dare you have sex with the secretary, you unclean bastard! But here you have prejudice in your heart, thinking you are superior to him. Because we have the sense that defilement of flesh is so nasty, but you hate a black man. Or you just don't like the brother sitting next to you. Are you envious of the other brother's success? You are driven by greed and you are covetous. Covetous. And you think that the guy who commits some sexual act is so immoral and you are so righteous. There's something called defilement of flesh and defilement of spirit. Both of them, both of them are designated as defilement. One is not superior than the other. So your envy is just as bad as adultery. Right? Let us cleanse ourselves from all. Let's get that word all. All means all, and that's all that all will ever mean. All does not mean some. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement. So let's read it again. Having these promises, something about what we have discovered now puts a more urgent demand upon all of us to live in a certain way. And you know what I recognize is this, if people have no sense of discovering God, very often that lack of discovery is what contributes to a lack of passion. You have no sense of God, you just kind of carry on like this morning, it's kind of too cold and I'm going to church. Oh, my, my, my finger hurts. I can't go to church, my finger hurts. 
My husband put too much sugar in the coffee. I'm not going to church this morning. I said, it's a casualness, sir. Nonchalance. Because I promise you, your nonchalance has nothing to do with the circumstances that you are always using as an excuse. It's because there's no internal grasp of God. You have not yet seen him. You have not yet seen him. Because I promise you, you have a sight of that God. Listen, man, you will swim the seven oceans to do what you must in order to make that God happy. You will inconvenience yourself. You will suffer loss, financially and otherwise, just to get that God. If you have not yet seen him, then all of life comes down to what is convenient to me. If you have not yet seen him, having these promises, let us rid ourselves of all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in fear of God. Let me kind of break that down and kind of, let's unpack it that way. Right? First of all, write this down. The fear of God is the catalyst. The fear of the Lord is the catalyst that allows for perfected holiness. The fear of God is the catalyst. That's the thing that switches it on. Because you don't, you don't arrive at perfected holiness because you read your Bible every day. The fear of the Lord is the catalyst that allows for perfected holiness. Well, I'm just trying to be holy before God, but where's your passion? The fear of the Lord is the catalyst that allows for perfected holiness. The other thing I want you to realize as well, it said, it said, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us cleanse ourselves. What do you understand that? It's a personal responsibility. Let us cleanse ourselves. That's not a Holy Ghost job, that's a night job. Let us cleanse ourselves. So, having these great and precious promises, I have to improve in my personal responsibility. It is not the pastor's job to hear God for me. It is my job to hear God for myself. It is not the pastor's job to pray for me. He will do that too. It is my job to pray for myself. Personal responsibility is a critical component in you standing up honorably for God. See, church, we stopped doing church a long time ago, right? You see, church allows for that level of laziness. Because church said, that's why we have a pastor. The pastor, he hears God for us, and he, he preaches to us, and he inspires us, and he has to be the comedian, and he has to be the one that keeps the whole thing going. No, we are all responsible for keeping this thing going. Let us cleanse ourselves speaks to personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. Read some more. Let's kind of um, let's pick let's pick it apart. Defilement of flesh is immorality of all forms. Any form of fleshly indulgence, any form of fleshly uncleanness, any form. You could go you could go to the extra man, right? From lust all the way down to anything. Once it is a fleshly indulgence, it is considered as a defilement of the flesh. And then has the defilement of the spirit. That speaks to wrong motives, wrong values, nasty attitudes, 
warped perspective, malice, prejudice, envy. That list goes on and on and on and on. Let's collect ourselves some more of those. Now let me work perfecting. Because perfecting carries the idea of extreme perfection. Perfecting holiness, extreme perfection. Listen, when you see that word, uh, uh, perfecting holiness, it, it represents a state that reaches, a state that reaches a place where you cannot slip. It's a condition. Perfecting holiness is as though you've gotten to a point where you can't slip or you refuse to slip. It's a place beyond stumbling. Perfecting holiness. I want to get there because I'll be honest, I'm not yet gotten to the point where my holiness is perfected. <laughs> perfected holiness is a point where you no longer stop. There's no more slippage. And that's a, that's a really, to me, when the word of God sets the bar so high, it means it's attainable. You understand me? Because in your mind, well, is it possible? Well, I'm only human. God's, God's position is, listen, it is a human. Let us cleanse ourselves and let us perfect holiness. Take it to the point where you no longer slip. You don't slip anymore. God, the grace of God is available. We are committing ourselves to a standard that means no slippage. No slippage. That is a high standard. Listen, when God raises the bar, we have, we have three options. We either rise to the occasion, or we do limbo and try to go under the bar, <laughs> or we try to circumvent the bar to go around it. You have three options. My question is, which of the three will you do? Will you choose? Will you try to do limbo and go under the bar? <laughs> will you try to circumvent and go around the bar, or you rise to the occasion? Perfecting holiness. That is an attainable standard. I don't read that as good God that is beyond my reach. No, it's in the word of God. It's possible. At least I would strive to live in such a way that there's no slippage. There's no slippage. A standard where you don't, you no longer slip. Now, this is the point that I found interesting. Because the, the encouraging point, the thing that switches this kind of life on, let me paraphrase. The thing that commits me to a higher level of personal responsibility. The thing that commits me to guaranteeing that I won't collapse into fleshly indulgence, neither do I allow my own spirit to drift into areas of spiritual carnality. We are still envious and still greedy and still prejudicial and you know all that stuff that your that the average eye won't see. We can see when a man collapses into moral indiscretion. And while you are there pointing a finger at the guy, we can't see the other stuff that exists in your own spirit. That commitment to live without slippage, those three issues, personal responsibility, ridding yourself of all fleshly and spiritual carnality, and committing yourself to a standard that is void of slippage, all of that is driven by one critical keyhole principle. That is the cause of these promises. What promise is that? 
a promise to them. Then go back to chapter 6 to see what was promised to them. Because in chapter 6, Paul began to outline the condition to which the church had come. Go back to chapter 6, let me just read two verses. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And my question to this, my question to you is that now, as a church here at Niagara Falls, we can either continue the way we used to be, or because of certain injection of vision, certain injection of life, certain injection of sight, certain injection of relationships, certain injection of God, it puts a any man in all of us. And we can no longer say, well, you know, I mean, this is how church used to be all the time. Hallelujah. Are you there? First Corinthians chapter 6. Are you there? Here it is. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Are you there? It says, I'm working together with him. I'm in a new, new, um, I'm in a new, new American Standard Translation I'm quoting here, but you can read what is on the wall. No, you can read that right. You can really read that right. Let me read what's on the wall. Let me focus on one. We then, as workers together with him, plead with you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Something that Paul um, talks about here as also in the book of Hebrews. We together, as workers with God, plead with you, beg you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. And that is like Paul telling him, telling you, well, you know, guys, um, don't, don't, don't read the cross here as casual. You know? don't, don't treat that so casual. You know? And guys, prayer meeting, don't just kind of. You know, not show up because well, you're not interested. And you know, I mean, please. I mean, Sunday morning we gather for for, for human development. No, still because well, it's too cold. You know, no, please. No, still because well, your husband didn't put too much sugar in coffee. You know, this is Paul. I plead with you. Don't we see the grace of God in vain? That's not like nice Christian uh, communication, but I, you can expand on all kind of levels. Paul is basically saying, please let's lift our level. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, you see that there? That is the criticality of the moment. In Paul's mind, there is an urgency now. There's an urgent now that God is investing in him. First, he went back and quoted a little scripture there, you know, as he says, in the acceptable time I've heard you, in their salvation I've helped you. Paul said, I'm going to unpackage that scripture and make that applicable right now. This is no longer scripture you are reading, you are looking at the realization of those principles. Are you following me? Now is the acceptable time. Right now, right now. In February 2022, now is a critical moment for the church in the and given the criticality of the now, we can no longer conduct our behavior with the casualness of before. And that's the point that Paul links to chapter 7. Given these precious promises, what are those promises? That we have now stepped into an urgent now. We step into an urgent now. In the day of salvation, he'll help you. You know? Now he's helping, he's willing to help. At the acceptable time, I heard you, he's willing to hear. He's willing to hear and he's willing to help. And if you have a God 
literally standing on tiptoes. We cannot respond to that kind of God casualness. And that's the context in which Paul said, you see right now, the fear of the Lord is critical because God is standing on tiptoes, willing to help, willing to hear. Are you following me? Yes. And in that regard, let's lift our level. Perfecting holiness of the fear of God. Rid ourselves of all this carnality, both of flesh and of spirit. Let's take responsibility because God is on tiptoes. It's no longer my scripture quoting. He said, you know what? No, no, no. Let me unpackage that. The same God who's willing to help and willing to hear, right now he's doing it even more urgently. And in that regard, let's lift our level. How many can understand that? This is no longer church. This is church Paul talking about now. This is the urgency of the moment. The urgency of the moment. In Paul's mind, you could have been casual five years ago. That's fine. I don't care. That's Paul. I don't care. Five years ago, you could be casual. You don't show up because it's cold. Fine. Do that a million times. Doesn't bother me. Now, God willing to help and willing to hear, you should be inside of here. If we start at 10.30, you should be banging on that door at 10 o'clock. You know? Because now is a different time. Ten years ago, there was a certain ease. Well, my finger hurts. I can't go to church, you know? My finger hurts. No. Today, because of the criticality of the moment, you should bring your dog, your goldfish, your cat, everybody coming in. Because this is a critical now you step to do. Are you following me? And if you see that, that informs your conduct. And that is the thing that Paul says. That is why we have to lift the level, perfecting holiness, because we step into an urgent now. And given that particular promise, because we step into the fulfillment of that promise, casualness is no more. Casualness is no more. Given the fact that that is what we are living in, God will look at our sacrifices and say, no, no, you see, you might say, well, Anderson, the last time you took a train and you came up here for nine hours just to come and speak to God again and go back on a train for nine hours. Listen, I'll do it again tomorrow if I have to, whether three of you show up here. Because the fear of God does not respond to external stimuli. I'll do it again. I'll do it for nothing. I'll do it even, even if you have no sense of appreciation for it. That's not the thing that drives you. Because of these promises, because of these promises, we have to rid ourselves of all carnality. You can no longer be casual and excusing yourself and every minute, like every single opportunity, I can't make it, I can't be there, forgive me, you know, I can't, oh. <laughs> all that stuff would have been good 10 years ago. He's stepping towards the gym now. Good. Any questions? Any comments? I'm going to stop right there. Question, comment, feedback, input, interjection, rejection. <laughs> what did you hear? What did you understand? What did you don't agree with? What you're willing to add to? This is your moment. Because remember what he said um, at the beginning Paul's, Paul's practice was dialogue. 